You've always wanted to what? I've always wanted to talk to a news reporter of the news. I'm very small. This is your lucky day, man. I'm Lenny Bernstein. I'm Lauren Weber. We're health reporters here at The Post. And today we're going on a journey into the world of school lunch. We're starting in the school cafeteria in Pembroke, North Carolina. What grade are you guys in? Second. How's school going so far this year? Good. Yeah. We're happy because we got our computers. It's the beginning of the school year, and I'm with Alana Gordon, an audio producer at The Post. Someone's waved to us, so we should ask Who's them. waving to us? Yes. Who wants to talk with us? Ugh, I'm jealous I couldn't be there for this trip. Can we talk to you? Can we record you and ask you what's happening? Okay. What's your name? Sienna Marie Jacobs. How old are you? Eight. No, seven. Are you hungry? Yeah. And um, what's your favorite lunch food? Lunch food? My name's Penny Chavis. I'm my cafeteria assistant. 22 years. Penny's grandkid is here in pre-K. You know, I was talking about this story with my mom, and she told me that the cafeteria workers told her that my brother threw away his food all the time at lunch. (laughs) And so, dear God, these people see a lot, and they look out for the kids. Penny's job this morning is prepping the ground beef for tacos. Lots of ground beef. 140 pound of hamburger meat, yes it is. Work. Well, first of all, we put the hamburger meat on at 8 o'clock and let it cook. Then we smash it to make sure it's really good enough for the children not to eat chunks. Miss Penny loves working here. It's been awesome <laughs> to see their face excited when it's lunchtime and to see what they're having for lunch. It's also really intense. They just have a couple of hours to get hundreds of meals together for the kids. And then working here in the kitchen, you're going to hear a whole lot of banging noise. (laughs) Harrison Branch, a nutrition supervisor, is prepping peaches from big cans into hundreds of individual containers. We'll dip it up, cup it up, and then we'll put it in the cooler. Uh, And then when the kids come through at lunch, we have it out down the line waiting for them to take with um, with their lunch. All in all, they've got about 10 cafeteria workers, 700 students to feed here. Hot stuff coming through. So it's kind of all hands on deck. Three more minutes, they'll be rolling in the door. Uh, 11, 11.30, depending on the grade. Uh, the kids bust in. they got to get their food off the lunch line. Uh, what would you like, baby? Make sure you get your food, OK, baby? This whole scene is giving me major flashbacks. I was totally getting flashbacks, too. You want a cheese cup? But something notable has changed here. Something is very different. As of this fall, the kids in this district now have a new choice on the lunch line. The day I'm here, the kids have two choices for lunch. See? You enjoying your day? Okay, which one do you want? So the first option is a walking taco. I'll put on the meat, then the, then the sauce. Which is a bag of chips that they've split open. Then they put on taco meat and cheese. Then I'm going to crunch this up and then put it in there. It's good. I like the school's food. But the other option, the new one... You want taco or Lunchables? ...is Lunchables. My name's Blakely Graham, and 
I was just like, oh my gosh, they have Lunchables. I was just shocked that they had them. So Lenny, you saw the Lunchables, which are those little combo meals of crackers and cheese and usually a meat in school. Pembroke is offering the one that has the turkey, crackers, and cheese, but it's a modified version from the kind Kraft Heinz sells in stores. For the first time, it meets the nutrition requirements for the federally subsidized school lunch program. So that means if the schools buy in, up to 30 million kids could be eating Lunchables. What did you just bite into? A double Lunchable cracker sandwich. So it sounds like some of these kids are really into this new option. But a lot of the child nutrition advocates that you and I are talking to, Lenny, told us that they have some major alarm bells going off. The eating habits we develop as kids can play a big role in our risk of developing chronic illnesses like diabetes or obesity. Overall, about one in five kids in this country is considered obese. And research suggests that there's a link between ultra-processed food that's designed to make us want to eat more and obesity. So what's going on? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Friday, October 20th. I'm Lenny Bernstein. And I'm Lauren Weber. Today, Lenny and I get to the bottom of what happened to school lunch in the United States. How Lunchables and other processed foods with lots of additives have made their way into school cafeterias. Despite big efforts to improve school nutrition. We start off where it matters, in the lunchroom. I guess people look at us and think, you know, that job's not so hard. They have no idea what it takes to to feed your child a healthy meal. We had no idea. (laughs) Pembroke Elementary is in rural North Carolina, surrounded by farmland. It's home to the Lumbee Native American tribe. The inside of the school is completely yellow. Yellow posters, yellow wall tiles. Even the principal, Joanna Hunt, is wearing a bright yellow suit. (laughs) Yes, yes. I try to stay in the school spirit, yellow and black. Their mascot is the bee, and you know, the cafeteria has a beehive vibe to it. All the students here and in the entire county eat for free at school. Enough families are low income that the whole district qualifies for federal reimbursements. This amounts to basically tens of thousands of meals going out each week in the county on a tiny budget of about a little more than $4 per meal. This makes a high-pressure restaurant look like child's play. It really does. It's pretty wild there. Oh, but much more fun. Oh, much more fun. I've I've been in this um, a little over 20 years, and it has been very rewarding. Very rewarding. Sandra Bell is the county's child nutrition supervisor. Sandra plans the menus. She works with the food vendors. She taste tests everything. And then she puts together panels of students who also taste test the food before she ever offers it to anyone. She's the mastermind behind Lunchables being here. And we talk in the cafeteria between the chaos. I want to know. You know, that I'm, I'm, I'm giving these kids exactly what, you know, I would give mine. I want to give them the best quality food that they can eat. Because a lot of kids, when they leave here on Friday, Monday morning when they come back, that's the first meal some of them's had, a decent meal. 
To understand how Lunchables passed the test, you have to understand what these schools are up against. Sandra and others here tell us over and over again that they have very tight budgets. Which on the financial side, you know, we try to keep our plate calls down because, of course, we, we operate by what we get off of, of reimbursement. It's how we make our money. It's a really tough balancing act for them. The lunch has to be appealing enough that the kids will actually eat it, but they're also juggling limited resources and staffing. And the kids have to get certain foods to meet nutrition requirements. They need to take fruits, vegetables, whole grains, proteins, or the schools won't get reimbursed. So Lenny, what I'm hearing is you're talking about the federal nutrition standards for school lunch. Well, hello everyone, welcome. If I can just step out of the cafeteria for a moment, let's talk about the standards that came into play about a decade ago. That's when First Lady Michelle Obama led a major push to address childhood obesity and tried to completely overhaul school lunches with new requirements. In the country today, tens of millions of children are eating healthier school meals that finally meet modern nutrition standards. Because of the time, the federal school lunch program had already been around for more than 60 years. But the rules were pretty lax around what could be served in school, what the government would pay for. Our school lunch program costs taxpayers more than $10 billion a year. And before these new standards, a lot of that money was spent on meals that had more than the recommended amounts of salt, sugar, and fat, meals that weren't meeting basic nutrition guidelines. The rules put caps on the amount of sodium and calories in school meals. They reduced the amount of fat in milk. But for a lot of health advocates, these regulations didn't go far enough. Like, french fries can count as a vegetable. At Pembroke, Sandra says it's tricky working within these standards, figuring out what kids will bite at when their taste buds are primed for highly processed, high-salt, high-fat foods that they're often inundated with outside of school. The calories are controlled. Um, the sodium's controlled. Everything is controlled. So back in June, Sandra got a call about a brand-new version of Lunchables just for schools. A food rep reached out, sent the samples to the office. Um, we ate them. Um, I was like, you know, this, this might catch on a little bit. Kraft Heinz, the company behind Lunchables, had done some tinkering. The company told us they spent nearly two years adjusting the original Lunchables so that they passed the school nutrition standards and qualified to be offered in the cafeteria. They told us that families have relied on Lunchables for years as a trusted meal solution. When you look at what's listed in these Lunchables, the turkey contains 14 ingredients, including some additives for flavor, texture, and shelf life. They also added some whole grains, increased the protein, and cut some of the fat. The sodium went up, but it's still under the federal limit. And Kraft Heinz told us that's because of the added protein. I'm putting peaches, refilling the peaches in the uh, slot. The cheese and turkey Lunchables still doesn't satisfy all of the nutrition requirements. It's not a full meal. The kids need to take a fruit or a vegetable. Um, beans or salsa. And on this day, it's salsa, ranchero beans, or canned peaches in syrup. And they need another whole grain to meet weekly requirements. The day I'm here, the kids get a bag of whole grain Cheez-Its, too. If they take the walking tacos, the chips are nacho cheese Doritos, which also have been fortified with whole grain. 
Doritos, Cheez-Its. I'm hearing a lot of familiar brands here. So Sandra, the county's nutrition supervisor, had tested the new Lunchables with some kids. Then she brought it to her boss, Charlene Locklear. Charlene makes the final call on what's in school lunches in Robeson County. I mean, I am so excited about the choices. Uh, and you hear it out in the communities from the children, you know, or parents. Excited about the other option they can now offer in addition to the main lunch item that they prepare themselves each day. Charlene and Sandra both tell me that Lunchables cost them more than what they typically consider spending. But the food has some key advantages compared to a hot lunch or even a turkey and cheese sandwich. Again, Sandra. When you take out labor costs, take out bringing it in, slicing it, what goes through of unthawing it, keeping that product cold, making ensuring child safety. There's a lot that plays into this. Zooming out from Pembroke, this makes total sense because from schools' perspectives, not all schools have fully functioning kitchens anymore. They might not even have as much capacity to really cook up anything on site or make things from scratch. But for something like Lunchables to work, which is more expensive, the kids have to actually like it. They have to take it to get reimbursed. It has to be popular. Well, so far, the kids seem into it here. They, I mean, just inhale them. <laughs> inhale them. <laughs> As of yesterday, we have ordered 900 cases of uh, Lunchables from our vendor, and we have depleted that. Raylan Locklear picks one up during the second grade lunch. I got a Lunchable, a milk, beans, sour cream, and a lettuce. He tells me he knows what to do from watching YouTube. Well, you put the um, cook, cookie down first. You put a ham. You put some cheese, and then you put another cookie. And then you put the rest of the cheese. Raylan actually has turkey, not ham, and crackers, not cookies. But he builds the tower so high that he can barely get it in his mouth. That is amazing. What about your salad? Are you going to eat your salad? You know what? I get Raylan. It's hard to eat a salad all the time. This new menu option isn't popular with everyone here. This is an Indian community. We've always had problems with flour and sugar and gluten and things of that nature. Diabetes, high blood pressure. Richard Jones approaches me just as lunch is wrapping up. He's wearing a Pembroke T-shirt, and he has a big medallion around his neck. It has a turtle on it, a symbol of Mother Earth, and he wants to talk. When I see him with the Lunchables, I said, if you open that Lunchable and take the product out and sit it on a plate, would you eat it then? And they're like, I don't know. I said, that package is pretty, and that really, that package is what sells it. What do you do here at school? I'm the um, Indian Ed, uh, Youth Development Specialist. I work with Indian Ed, it's a federal program. I've been with the school system now about 12 years, but I was in the restaurant business before that. Richard sits on the Lumbee Tribal Council. He's trying to get more farmers to distribute produce locally. He's 54, and he says a few years ago he had his own epiphany when a doctor told him his blood sugar levels were creeping up and he needed medicine. I've always been a fan or, or advocate of the cafeteria. It's free, eat it, um, it's, it's healthy. But once I really started looking, after my, you know, after I got my little scalp, really, I said, man, we're having pizza and sandwiches and a hot dog. And I see the kids, their, weight is, their weights, their waistlines are getting bigger and bigger. 
So Richard knows the cafeteria workers are doing what they can. They have a federal grant to give out fresh fruits and vegetables, completely separate from lunch. But Lunchables, even the tweaked version in the cafeteria, it just doesn't sit well with him. Well, I'm glad they're making the changes, but it's still processed food. And I think about our, our kids, I think about my grandkids, what it's going to be like. What, what would their food be like? I mean, right now they put a brand new dialysis right down the road. And I really think that that's, if people don't see that, I bring Richard's concerns to Sandra and Charlene. The majority of, of what I see with kids with their lunch boxes when you walk around prior to us having them was the Lunchable. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. Ain't it's a whole grain product too, you know, where most of the times when you go to the grocery store, they don't offer that. It is the regular, just the white bread. They still prepare foods from scratch for the kids. That's not easy. They don't have a lot of money to spend. Sometimes you can't get your hands on good quality foods that you really want to serve. For the nutrition supervisors, Lunchables in the cafeteria also adds something else that the nutrition content doesn't really capture. It's an equalizer. Some kids may already bring it from home, but other families in this district can't afford it. So now parents save money and all the kids get to have the same thing. You guys take care now, all right? Study hard. Thank you all. So very good. You know, it's not really surprising that Lungibles is so popular with kids, parents, and most of the people you talk to at Pembroke. Lunchables were designed that way for people to love them from the start. I mean, everywhere I go and I'm talking about food and and people go like, oh, yeah, I love Lunchables. Michael Moss is an investigative reporter and author of the best-selling book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. I think it's really important to understand that that almost with every product you see in the grocery store or quick serve restaurants, it's playing to our emotions as much as it is to kind of our taste buds and our the reward center of our brain and the receptors in the gut, right? I mean, we eat for emotions, whether it's sadness or loneliness or angst. We reached out to Michael to understand how Lunchables won America over, how we got here. It's 1985 in... Madison, Wisconsin, right? The home of the University of Wisconsin, bastion of liberalism, and also the home of a company called Oscar Mayer. You may be too young, but I certainly remember Oscar Mayer as being the owner of the Oscar Mayer Wiener Mobile, which would drive around the country to promote Oscar Mayer hot dogs. And also the creator of that incredible jingle Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. One of the first marketing giants in the history of sort of of food marketing. But Michael says in 1985, Oscar Mayer had a problem. We're like, we're getting tired, sick even of bologna sandwiches. They have an excess amount of processed ham. They need not only a new product, but they need, like, a major blockbuster hit. Enter Bob Drain, 
he's this marketing genius at Oscar Mayer. And so they turned to this guy named Bob Drain, who's kind of a marketing guru specialist at uh, Oscar Mayer. And they say, Bob, you know, can you find us a, can you invent for us a new blockbuster to save the company? Uh, hi, I'm Bob Drain. Uh, way back in 1987, I was able to lead the project that uh, ended up with uh, Lunchables. Bob Drain is 81 years old, and I was able to reach him by phone where he lives in Wisconsin. Uh, we put together a little task force of people that went off and tried to explore lunches for children and talked to moms about that. And we immediately found a major problem, which is that working moms in particular at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday were confronted with trying to pack school lunches for their kids. And that was uh, a painful experience. And so our objective was to come up with an alternative that was uh, easy and convenient for mom and also popular with kids. And eventually through this process, they come to this notion that they could design like a little tray. It's almost kind of like a bento box with little bits of processed ham to which they've added cheese. They wanted to add bread, but that would go stale really quickly. So they used crackers, um, put it together, settled on the name Lunchables, and they were off and running. Lunchables became a symbol of much more than the Lunchable itself. Seeing the Lunchables as almost like this present that moms could and dads could give their children in lieu of having time to make like a real wholesome lunch, which they maybe used to do. But also the early versions kind of had like a little wrapper over the front that the inventors saw as looking like gift wrapping, like the mom saying, here, kid, sorry I couldn't make you a great lunch, but here's my present to you for being absent at work. From there, they experimented with all kinds of Lunchables variations. But Bob Drain says the major hit came as a surprise. We talked with kids and we asked them if you were going to go to lunch with Michael Jordan, what would you like to have? And they said, pizza. (laughs) 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 And so we scratched our heads and tried to figure out how in the world we would do uh, pizza Lunchables. And we came up with the crusts and the sauce. And uh, we showed that to moms and they said that was the worst idea they had ever heard of. Absolutely terrible. Don't do that. It's a mess. Uh, We'll never succeed. And that's when we learned that uh, uh, surveys uh, have to be done with the right person or you'll get the wrong answer. Uh, Politicians should listen up. (laughs) Um, And uh, so we showed it to the kids and the kids were, you know, wow. (laughs) The execs thought this might do well. But Michael says it became one of the entire food industry's most successful products ever, totally reshaping kids' lunch as we know it. 
And would you say, I mean, it seems like this would probably be the most successful invention of your career, correct? Well, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All you got to do is get one right. But Lunchables needed a lot of startup cash to get it off the ground, to make it successful. It was a gamble. Michael suspects were it not for this one detail, Lunchables would have died out in the early years. The overall owner of Oscar Mayer and Kraft was none other than Philip Morris. Philip Morris, the tobacco company. In the late 80s and 90s, tobacco was diversifying by getting into big food. They owned the world's leading food companies. They saw it as the next frontier. And Philip Morris brought in a ton of money to launch and support products and market the heck out of them. So one of the things they did do was kind of lend their expertise in terms of marketing products. Moss told us even Philip Morris execs were worried about how addictive these foods were. But as one of them said, You know, that's our business and we know how to sell this stuff and we're going to be really successful at it. And I think it's, it's kind of that attitude more than anything that pushed the food side to sell more and more and more. Even in its early days, health experts were raising concerns about how Lunchables might be putting kids at future risk for chronic health problems. We asked Kraft Heinz about this and about the general nutrition value of processed food and its health risks. A spokesperson said that just because a food is processed doesn't mean it's not healthy and that the company is committed to the nutrition and health of families. Nutrition experts say that industrial processing does change the structure of food, though, and that can affect how much you eat and absorb your weight and your risk for disease. So Lunchables had the taste, the presentation, the marketing muscle to go straight to families and kids. One of the the first things I saw in reporting on Lunchables was this incredible memo. Um, It was actually sort of a presentation that the Oscar Mayer people were making to the tobacco managers at Philip Morris, this is 1995, where they're talking about initiatives, which that, you know, they were they were starting to advertise directly to kids on Saturday morning. And they could do it without many guardrails. In 1980, Congress stripped the Federal Trade Commission of some of its power to regulate ads to children. During this period, childhood obesity is going up. Since the 1970s, it has nearly quadrupled, according to federal numbers. That's a lot higher than most other countries. Michael sees a connection. Processed food is the new tobacco. As smoking declines and obesity surges, he worries more people may now die from obesity-related complications, from products that don't have the same sort of stigma that cigarettes have. But they have this added thing going for them, which is that we still we're still kind of tempted to see them as our friends because we grew up with that. These products were sold by cartoon characters or celebrities. And yet, to Michael, having these products available in schools in 2023 represents an advantage that far surpasses what any advertising campaign could ever buy. Kids have this incredible uh, power to build you know, long-lasting, permanent memories, and they associate food with these other emotions going on. And so the marketing potential, the marketing opportunity 
And something like even, you know, even a school where, you know, maybe it's not the most joyous moment. Frankly, lunchtime is a pretty happy moment in school, right? Um, that's huge to these companies in terms of their ability to create kind of new brand loyal, as they call it, customers. After the break, we head to the Super Bowl of school lunch gatherings to see just how much traction Lunchables is gaining. And we hear directly from the food industry. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the middle of the summer and almost 90 degrees, and we arrive at a supersized trade show for school lunch in Denver, Colorado. Right as Lunchables is preparing to make its school debut. So we're outside the Denver Convention Center to go to the School Nutrition Association's annual convention. And today uh, we're going to tour their trade show and see how vendors uh, try to sell their products to school districts. So far we're seeing, you know, a lot of school nutrition officers that are wearing matching t-shirts. Can you describe the shirt that you're wearing for us? Because our lunch lady shirt. <laughs> Randy Miramontes is manager of the elementary school kitchen in Thermopolis, Wyoming. Her shirt has a big food label on it, except it's for, quote, lunch ladies, and lists some very fun nutrition facts. Amount per serving, one full lunch room, hardworking 100%, multitasking 300%, caffeine 110%. Someone else is handing out a school nutrition trade magazine to everyone heading in. It's full of ads. Welch's fruit snacks, USDA compliant packs, available in two delicious varieties. Nuggets. But they're whole grain breaded. And this whole grain cinnamon rolls. Terms like shelf stable, USDA compliant, lower sodium, those are all the big buzzwords. Inside, the main expo floor is huge. It's bigger than a couple of football fields. It's a lot to take in. I mean, it's like you're in Times Square for school nutrition. I mean, there's billboards everywhere, signs, all kinds of things that say come hungry, cool little advertisements for grab-and-go sections. About 6,500 people are here from across the country, people who run school food programs, school administrators, to share ideas and frustrations about school lunch programs. Hundreds of food companies show off their goods. Based on our calculations, they've paid the association combined more than $2 million to be here. 
gravy. I'm gonna put white gravy right here, so you can try that first. Can I honestly have the um, beef? the beef gravy oh, okay. and see how that is? At the C.H. Gunther & Son booth, Chief Food Scientist Indira Reddy hands Cheryl Tabor a sample of their whole grain biscuits and whole grain gravy. Oh my gosh, this is so, it's not dry. I like the brown gravy over the white gravy. On your biscuits? Surprisingly, yes. That's awesome, yeah. The booth has a school-like chalkboard in the back with phrases like whole grain, low sodium, smart snack compliant, as in lower sugar. All of that appeals to Cheryl. She's with Weatherford Schools in Texas. We need new product that meets our guidelines for our new menu for next year. So I ask her about Lunchables. Are you? She says she's considering it. She already stopped by the main booth here. I got socks. Oh, you got socks from got the Lunchable socks. booth? Is that the coolest thing you've gotten so far? Or? Yes. Yes. Will you, yes. Other yep. than the food. <laughs> we head over to the source. Where are, where, I mean, I know it's a huge booth. Where is it? It's over here. So we're passing by a Domino's uh, Smart Slice it is Domino's food. We pass by the Domino's booth. It's set up like a mini cafeteria. Domino's reformulated its pizza for schools with lower sodium and added whole wheat in order to meet nutrition standards years ago. So Lunchables is the latest and a bigger trend. So we're walking up to the Lunchables booth. It's pretty large. It's hard to miss. With some floating Lunchables snack crackers. There's these giant fake crackers, meat and cheese slices as big as truck tires hanging from above. And they have a bunch of ads that say it's approved to now go in lunches. Right next to the booth, some of the new school Lunchables are featured inside museum-like display cases with other Kraft Heinz items like Jello and pudding. I catch Michelle Helms as she's leaving the booth. We've had a hard time in school lunch. We have strict guidelines and I mean, there's not a director in here or a, or a cafeteria manager or a cook. We want to make our kids happy. She hasn't signed off on Lunchables just yet. Her district has zero wiggle room with rising food prices. She says she can only afford spending about a dollar on the main lunch entree. I ask her about the nutrition part of it, if that matters to her. Does that matter to you? It does matter to us. In our district, we offer scratch cooked and processed. We offer a mix of both. We don't have enough labor to do scratch cook every single day. While Lenny's hearing from Michelle, I walk up to the Lunchables booth. Hi, I'm Lauren Weber with the Washington Post. Uh, I wanted to see... My plan here is to find out more about the new Lunchables for schools and the interest in them, how it's going. We just want to hear what they have to say. While I appreciate the opportunity to speak with the Washington Post, um, I am not the correct contact for that interview. You'll have to reach out to our media relations oh, no, team. We have. We just figured we'd ask while we were here. Kraft hasn't released any details about how many districts among the thousands out there around the country have actually signed on this year to have Lunchables in the schools. But it's a new product. School lunch directors and cafeteria workers keep stopping by the booth. At the very same time, a growing faction of school leaders are actively skipping past this area. They got a different vision for the school lunch tray. All right, produce row, which one is it? Produce row. Produce row. 
Bertrand Weber peels me away from the Lunchables booth and brings me to a smaller, far less prominent area. This is what they call produce row, which is kind of new to the trade show, where it's focused on fresh product, fresh produce, mostly. Produce Row is set up like a corner grocery store with a fresh fruits and vegetables stand. Bertrand is the director of culinary and wellness services at Minneapolis Public Schools. He's at the center of a grassroots, whole foods, farm-to-school movement. And he's a known force on the expo floor. Our two favorite friends. Good. Bertrand says a lot of cash-strapped schools may be thinking about sourcing food for lunch the wrong way. It's not expensive scratch cooking versus convenient and affordable processed foods, he says. This is a business. Companies, naturally, are trying to make money. So they have to generate interest. They have to have a product that hopefully their customers will buy. And schools can capitalize on that. For his own district, Bertrand says he works with about a dozen farms that are USDA certified. They put in bulk orders in advance, and it gives farms a guarantee that Bertrand will buy up whole fields. Bertrand and this whole food movement are even changing how some companies make and sell ready-made food for schools. Oh, and is Steve here by any chance? Our other stop is to Steve Turner at the Los Cabos Mexican Food Booth out of California. It's set up like a cantina, thatched roof, fake beach, sunset background. So, uh... Minneapolis public came to us and asked us if we would make a clean label burrito for him. I asked him kind of what was on his mind for the ingredients and whatnot. Several years ago, Bertrand pressed Steve to change their burrito. So I said, what are you looking for? And he said, none of these no-no ingredients that he uses for, for a particular grant. So we came back to him with a, a beef, bean, and red chili burrito. And it was basically beef, beans, paprika, onions, spices, garlic, water, and They use less additives now and more whole food ingredients. And that worked out great for both of them. That really catapulted our our clean label category, so. And they like it, what's the? the Oh yeah, I mean, it's still on our menu. But the reason I'm here today actually is because I wanted to follow up on the uh, the tamale. Where did we land? So I'll get those tamales taken care of for you. We're good, anything else we need? And then we did send these in. Bertrand sees what he's up against, how much big companies have poured into having a presence here and in schools, into, he says, growing their influence and profits. A few months ago, Bertrand got an email from the School Nutrition Association, the group that put on this conference and advocates on behalf of school lunch personnel. It was an advertisement for Lunchables. His reaction? Are you kidding me? Delete. The president of the association later told us that they don't endorse any specific product. The School Nutrition Association says their members decide the platform. Our own examination of state nutrition association chapters found that they collectively get more than a million dollars in funding from corporate food partners. Bertrand doesn't think Lunchables has a place in school nutrition discussions or in cafeterias. It's an extension of the retail business. Does it belong on a lunch tray? I say no. I think it's a snack. I think it's an emergency meal. I don't think it belongs as a way to teach kids that the Lunchable is what this is a normal lunch. Bertrand says the federal school nutrition standards don't do enough. They miss something super important, the integrity of the food itself, whether it's whole food. He and others in this movement say putting the focus on the nutrition standards and what's in the food 
versus the actual food has meant the processed food companies can adjust their products to meet the requirements. This is the opposite of the way other countries like Switzerland, where Bertrand grew up, approach school lunch. In that way, his concern speaks to a much bigger dynamic in the American food system and culture around health. Because who wants to be told what to consume, how much, or when? How do you regulate someone's diet? Right? Now, I don't want to be judgmental, but the American diet is not the best in the world. It's not great. I can work on mine. Okay. But yet, people don't want to be regulated. And, and I, I get that. I don't want to be regulated either. That's the American way. Thank you so much for welcoming me. Oh, you're welcome. We wanted to understand how school nutrition rules got to where they are in the U.S. So we reached out to the agency that makes these rules, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA. My name is Cindy Long, and I am the administrator of USDA's Food and Nutrition Service. We meet Cindy outside the expo floor. She says the nutrition standards have made a big difference in kids' health over the last decade. They've got evidence now. We have seen that they are a tool that can work. We have research that shows that kids who eat school meals compared to their counterparts that don't eat more fruits and vegetables, they eat more whole grains, they eat lower-fat dairy, and a lot of them are getting more than half of their intake on school days at school. And you, you do hear, particularly the younger kids, but sometimes even from the older ones, that what they're served at school can influence what they ask their parents to buy and serve so they can have an impact. Cindy says the USDA budget for nutrition education and promoting a balanced diet is minuscule compared to the marketing muscle of big food companies. USDA tries to incentivize scratch cooking and using whole foods through grants to schools. What do you make about Lunchables now being offered for the upcoming school year? Yeah, well, you know, as you know, our role is to set these broad standards for meals, not individual products. It's not our job, really, to comment on individual products. Cindy isn't saying this outright, but something else is at play behind the scenes. Part of the problem for the USDA is that they're caught in the middle of a much bigger food fight in Congress. Congress has power over the USDA and influence over how these regulations play out in the cafeteria. And that's where companies can exercise their lobbying muscle. Now there's a new fight over pizza and what really constitutes healthy food for our kids in school. Congress says a slice of pizza qualifies as a vegetable because it has two tablespoons of tomato paste. Well, what's next? Are Twinkies going to be considered a vegetable? We're now seeing efforts in Congress to roll back these new standards. Now, Republicans deny that. They say they also want students to eat healthful foods, but they say school districts should have some flexibility to make their own decisions. As an example, a decade ago, Congress fought over tomato sauce on pizza. It gave the okay to keep counting it as a vegetable in school lunch. Same with French fries. Looking ahead, Cindy says the USDA is planning to update the nutrition rules even more to reduce sugar and milk to further lower sodium. But they've been reviewing tens of thousands of public comments. Transitions take time, and Congress could stand in their way. I think in the U.S., that is what is going to drive the change, is that communities, parents are going to be demanding and looking for that kind of meal and kind of food for their kids. More than three decades after Lunchables was invented, it now could get in front of 30 million kids in schools. 
Kraft Heinz recently responded to some of our questions. They said that many American parents already pack Lunchables for their kids' lunches. So bringing Lunchables to school cafeterias makes sense for parents, kids, schools, and for their brand. And by that, quote, by offering Lunchables in schools, we're able to help meet some of the School Nutrition Association's needs by giving them affordable, convenient solutions that provide students with quality nutrition at lunchtime. We did speak with other analysts and reviewed investor information. Kraft Heinz anticipates a potential $25 billion growth opportunity by offering Lunchables in schools. During a May investor update, the company wrote that the rollout has gotten practically all positive coverage and cost them virtually nothing in advertising. Kraft Heinz did not respond to additional questions for the podcast. But there was one person very close to Lunchables we were able to talk to about all of this. The person behind its creation, Bob Drain. That was uh, very surprising to me. Bob says he had heard that the company was trying to adjust Lunchables so it could be available in the National School Lunch Program. But he didn't realize it was actually happening. How do you feel about the nutritious content of Lunchables? <laughs> um, well, there's a long, 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 long history around that, um, which is a concern early on about nutrition, trying to come up with a nutritionally better item was on the agenda every single year. Bob says since the beginning, they tried a lot of things to improve the nutritional profile of Lunchables. We did fresh fruit, we did yogurts, we did uh, different uh, cracker formations. Uh, reducing sodium, did everything we could think of, um, and put many of those into the marketplace, by the way, um, and none of them stuck. <laughs> and it wasn't for, for a lack of trying. Um, it just never made it with consumers. He says customers didn't bite. From a supply chain standpoint, it's also super hard to keep fruits and vegetables fresh. Bob also remembers the pushback about the health of Lunchables early on. Even his daughter refused to feed it to her own kids. Yes, Bob's grandkids. Bob says he's proud of Lunchables, but it never occurred to him that it would ever be considered a replacement for lunch. Its original intention, the one he envisioned, was as a backup plan, an occasional treat. You know, some of the advocates we talked to were somewhat surprised that Lunchables were approved to be served for a school lunch, right? They were worried about the nutritious components of it. But, I mean, kids have been taking Lunchables to school for 30-plus years. You know, do you ever have any thoughts about the nutritional um, impact that Lunchables has had for children across the U.S.? You know, the, the truth of the matter is that... Uh, Lunchables is an infrequent product in terms of the total number of lunches that kids consume. It's not like a generation of kids are eating uh, Lunchables five days a week. Um, I don't know anymore what the frequency is, but, you know, it was once in a while. Kind of thing. This year, in late summer, 
Kraft Heinz debuted something else to much less fanfare. It's Lunchables for the grocery store that contains fresh fruit, like grapes and apples. In a press release, the company stated that they developed it after, quote, seeing a 500% increase in social media searches for Lunchables with fruits and vegetables in the past year. In Pembroke, North Carolina, a few weeks after the Lunchables launch, after the turkey and cheese version hit the lunch line, the district debuted another Lunchable option, the only other one made for the National School Lunch Program. And that one is? I'll let you take a guess. Uh, why didn't you get the Lunchable? Well, I'm not a huge fan of Lunchables. I, the only type of Lunchable I'm um, the biggest fan of is the pizza Lunchables. Which one do you eat? Um, pizza. Well, what if they got those pizza Lunchables in here? Then I would definitely have eaten them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ilana Gordon and edited by Maggie Penman with help from Tracy Jan. It was mixed by Sean Carter. Big thanks to all of our other colleagues who helped with this reporting, including Steve Smith, Wendy Gallietta, Dan Keating, Matt McLean, and Hayden Godfrey. The Post Reports team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Elahe Izadi, Monica Campbell, Robin Amer, Eliza Dennis, Ilana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Bishop Sand, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svirnovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. Our intern is Trinity Webster Bass. And if you care about reporting like this, please subscribe to The Washington Post. You can now get access to everything The Post has to offer and listen to our podcasts ad-free. You'll also get access to more subscriber-only audio benefits, like exclusive and early access episodes. If you're already a Washington Post subscriber, you can get ad-free podcasts starting today. Check it out on Apple Podcasts or by following the link in our show notes. I'm Lauren Weber. And I'm Lenny Bernstein. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're gonna learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.